So we are in our Saints series. This is kind of an extended um, celebration of November 1st, All Saints Day. Uh, so each week um, through the month of November, we're taking a different person through history who was a follower of God, and we're just kind of looking at what we know about their life and what it has kind of added to the church and what we can kind of extrapolate from the way they lived uh, just to see what that um, can say to us. And we kind of draw that from that verse in Hebrews that this is the cloud of witnesses. This is the story we're a part of. This is kind of the grand narrative that we've been um, kind of written into. And so these are our people. And so we're just kind of taking some time to look at them. And last week we talked about... Um, uh, Herman Nichols, Brother Lawrence, um, who was in the 17th century, a really tumultuous time in science and thought and religion and a lot going on. And uh, in the midst of this kind of chaos, he, uh, he found this really simple life. He, he was a soldier and a dishwasher, and, uh, and he became a, a kind of a brother in a monastery. Uh, he never officially became a monk. He just became kind of one of the, uh, the servants there. And, um, and in the midst of his life, he lived the kind of life that drew attention, that people noticed there was something different about him. So he started asking him questions and interviewing him and writing him, like what made him so different? And uh, the key to what he did was just tried to keep himself aware of the presence of God in every moment. And he kind of came at it from a place of faith that, that God is always there. I shouldn't have to do anything to draw his presence. I should just be able to make myself aware of it. It's here. I know it's here. And if I can just stay aware of it at all times, it will change my life. And it did his. And so uh, kind of on that vein, we've been kind of following this idea that of everyday faith. And really all four people that we're going to talk about this month kind of had an everyday faith kind of lifestyle. These aren't people who were calling down fire from heaven and splitting the Red Sea. These are people who lived a pretty ordinary life, but did amazing things in the midst of it. And uh, this week, um, we're talking about a guy named Bezalel. Bezalel was this guy in the Old Testament. We know very little about him other than this one little passage, but he has kind of stood out to me um, forever because of this one line that kind of jumps out at us. It says, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and have filled him with the Spirit of God. This is a phrase we get kind of used to in the, in the Scripture. It happens quite a bit. We see people being, the Spirit of God coming upon some people, and some people being filled with the Spirit of God. And we, and we see this, and usually we associate it with preaching, or with, you know, Elijah calling down fire from heaven, or uh, to consume the altar when he's kind of challenging the prophets of Baal. Moses, when he's, you know, doing all the miracles we think about in terms of the, the prophets as they prophesied, you know, as the spirit of God came upon me and I said, you know, such and such. We think about it in terms of the writing of scripture, of course, and in the New Testament as they spoke with tongues and did miracles. We, we generally associate it with these kind of spiritual things, these kind of big church, you know, things that were that kind of a get associated with the Spirit of God. And what I love about this passage is that this kind of breaks that down. This guy is filled with the Spirit of God, uh, which we're used to, but it says here's why he was filled with the Spirit of God. 
It says, See, I have called Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur, from the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the spirit of God in wisdom and understanding and knowledge in all manner of workmanship and to design artistic works in the working of gold and silver and bronze, cutting jewels and setting and carving wood and to work in all manner of workmanship. So here's this guy who is imbued with the power of God through the spirit of God to do work, to work, to be a craftsman, a carpenter, a, a, a metalsmith, it sounds like. Like this guy, God filled him with his spirit so he could do his craft well. So this is just a worker who is working in the power of God, in workmanship and art. And the thing I like about that is there's nothing spiritual going on in this guy that you could notice. If you were to walk in and watch this guy's life, chances are you'd be saying, man, that guy's a great carver. That guy's a great, you know, metalsmith. Or that guy's really good at his craft. But you probably wouldn't naturally go, it's amazing how the Spirit of God just comes out of this guy in the way he works. We don't generally think that way. We think of the Spirit of God in terms of these big, powerful you know, dynamic spiritual things. And Bezalel seems kind of neat because he knocks down that wall between that, that kind of wall that we put up between the sacred and the secular. Like we have kind of our sacred spiritual work and then we have our secular work that happens when we leave that realm, you know. And, and we even talk about it in terms of our job. I, oh no, I have a secular job. You know, like I don't work in the church. I have a secular job out here. And Bezalel breaks that down because God is empowering Bezalel the way we see often to work in a secular job. And this finds its, in my opinion, finds its purpose and its meaning and its real understanding in the original story in Genesis. So we're going to go there. We're going to be there for a little bit before we come back to Bezalel. And it starts this way. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1.1, the very first lines of scripture. Then the next chapter, uh, when it's kind of expounding on some of these things, it said, God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. Because in it, he rested from all of his work, which God had created and made. So this is always fascinating to me because we, before we know God as father, before we know him as savior, before we know him as this kind of moral absolute, you know, who, who defines morality, before we know him as judge, before we know him as any of those things, we know him as creator. As the very first revelation we get of God in scripture is as a worker. It says that on the seventh day he rested from his work, from his labors, one of the translations says. So we first learn God as a worker, as a laborer, before we know him in any other context. And it continues down here that we find out that he not only, this wasn't just a creative process, it was a continuing process, because then it says that he planted a garden eastward in Eden and he put the man there so now we've got him as a gardener now he's planting gardens he's created he did his creative work and you could argue that there's not much effort in speaking something into existence but it also says he made man out of the dirt with his hands and he planted a garden in Eden so we're getting this revelation this image of God from the very beginning that he's a worker that he's he puts forth effort he's not distant and 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 apart, he's in it, and he's doing it with his own hands and effort. And it says that we're made in God's image, that there's part of us that's created to be like God. And so we pretty quickly find out here. It says, then the Lord God took man and put him in the garden uh, of Eden to tend and keep it. 
This is out of the ground or uh, out of the ground. The Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called them, each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all the cattle, all the bird, all the air and every beast of the field. So very quickly, we see Adam kind of taking up this mantle that God had given him, this mantle of work. He immediately goes to tending and caring for the garden. He's, he's laboring with his day and he's got both physical work in the garden and this kind of almost academic work of classifying those things that exist. God could have named everything, but he assigned that task, that work to Adam. So Adam goes to work naming and, and there's a creative nature to that, to, to create the names for things. And so what jumps out at me about this is at this point, there's no sin yet. Nothing's broken. This is paradise. This is, this is what we were created for. Okay, so this is not, most of us, when we think of work, we think of it as that thing you have to do in a sinful and broken world just to make ends meet. But this is a perfect world, and it includes work. It includes labor. I think if, if Adam and Eve hadn't sinned and we still lived in the garden, chances are we would all still be working. We would all still have our jobs and be working because that's part of the original design. It's part of how God made us. It's what he did and he made us in his image. So it's what we did. And so before you see any brokenness, before you see any fallenness, before anything is messed up, you already have work. You already have humans working. Okay, so this is part of our original design. What's interesting as I was thinking through this this week is if Adam and Eve hadn't sinned and hadn't fallen, and the world hadn't been broken by sin, chances are I wouldn't have a job right now. I mean, I don't know that we would need pastors to, to try and bring forth the redemptive work of God if everything was perfect. Chances are you guys would all still have the same jobs you have right now. And I would not. Which in a sense means your jobs are probably closer to the original design than mine is. Because mine is built on the understanding that the world is broken and we have to move forward in redemption. And so my job is to help try and redeem what is broken. If things hadn't been broken, there's a very good chance as culture advanced that all the same jobs would exist, that all, this, that, that all these other jobs would still be in place, only we would know that we wouldn't need pastors. So in a sense, yay for Adam and Eve. Um, no. Um, <laughs> that's terrible. Okay. Um, so that begs the question, of course, if we were created to work, if God worked in the beginning and he made us like him and he gave us jobs from day one, what went wrong? Why is work so hard? Why has work beat us down and why is it so much effort? And we know this story. Uh, this comes from, it starts in chapter three of Genesis. And this is exciting for me to talk about because this is part of our vision statement for this church. If you weren't here in the very, very beginning, maybe you've never spent time with this vision statement that we kind of set out with. <clears throat> but it goes like this. Open Table Community Church is a community organized by and around the Word of God to cooperate in the mission of God of furthering the kingdom of God. We accomplish this by gathering in worship together around a common teaching and a common table, by living in fidelity to Christ and one another, and by working together to bring reconciliation to the four relationships broken by sin in the fall. So the way I see it, there was four relationships that existed 
uh, in creation that were broken when Adam and Eve sinned. The first is between the man and God. That something happened when God showed back up in the garden that night, man hid from him. He had never done that before. Something in that relationship had changed in that man no longer wanted to be in the presence of God. So the man hid. He hid from God, it says, and God had to call him out. And we're familiar with this one. This is what the gospel story is about. This is the one we spend most of our time on in the church is, is redeeming this relationship with God, trying to put people's relationship back together with God. We're used to this one. And the second one we're pretty used to, too, there was a broken relationship between the man and the other, Adam and Eve, that for the first time they looked at each other and they were ashamed. I mean, no, that was the other. They looked at each other and, and pointed blame. So when God showed up and said, Adam, how do you know you're naked? What is happening? And he said, the woman did it. That for the first time there's this, they're not seeing each other as one anymore. They're seeing each other as the other. And there's this brokenness that happened there. There's this division between the person and the other. And we know this one. We're familiar with this one because we, we know that the great commandment is to love God and love the other. Um, and so we're used to that. But part of the re- reconciliation process is to, to fix relationships between us. And, and that's why we focus on things like forgiveness and, and grace with each other. So we're used to this one. And then there's a brokenness between the man and himself or the woman and herself. That for the very first time, they looked down and saw shame. They felt shame. They felt their nakedness. Something had changed in them that they were no longer comfortable in their own skin. That for the very first time, now that sin is in the picture, they see themselves um, and, and they don't like what they see. They're, they cover up. They start to put up a false self. And they have a hard time being their authentic self that they had been before that moment. And so there's a brokenness there. And so part of what we seek to do here is to, is to reconcile that brokenness, to redeem that and to, to create a space where we can be our authentic selves and know that that's going to create tension and know that it's going to be tough sometimes. Sometimes we like each other's false self more than we like each other's authentic self. And, uh, and, it, and so it is a challenge, but we're trying to create a space where we can be our authentic selves. And the last one is there's a brokenness between the man and his vocation or the woman and her vocation. There's this fourth brokenness that we don't talk about enough in the church. And it goes like this. To the woman, he says, I will greatly multiply your sorrows in your conception. In pain, you'll bring forth children. Your desire shall be to your husband and he shall rule over you. To Adam, he says, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree, which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake and toil you shall eat all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring up for you and you shall eat the herbs of the field. In the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for from dust you are, to dust you shall return. So this is generally called the curses. I like to think of them as the observations. <laughs> just, these are just the natural consequences that were the outflowing of this new brokenness. This is just what the world was going to be like now. Um, this wasn't, I don't know that this was God saying, I'm going to you know, knock you on the head with all these things because you didn't obey me. I think this is God basically showing Adam and Eve what the world was going to be like. This is what it's going to take. And, and one of the things that was broken, one of the relationships that's broken here in this original sin is between the people and their vocation. No longer is it going to be easy. No longer is it going to feel like what they were created for, what they were designed for. Raising kids, and, and you know, is going to be hard. And 
feeding your family is going to be hard. It's going to be effort. It's going to beat you up. You have to sweat to do it, and, and it's going to be a labor. And so in a nutshell, work was broken. And so I feel like, and the reason I love Bezalel is because I feel like part of the church's job, just like we, we work to redeem people's relationship with God. We work to redeem relationships between one another. We work to, to find a way to, to be our authentic self and to heal this broken relationship of shame that we have and to, to learn to be ourselves without that shame, without that kind of fig leaf of covering. But I also feel like we need to work to redeem the understanding that we were created for vocation, that we were created for work, and hopefully redeem that work. As we get back to Bezalel, oops, apparently didn't write this one down. <coughs> See, I've created, or called by name, Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I filled him with the Spirit of God, in wisdom, in understanding, and knowledge, in all manner of workmanship, in design, and artistic works, to work gold and silver and bronze and cutting jewels for setting and carving wood and in for all manner of workmanship. I think the very first step to redeeming work that we get from Bezalel here is to understand that this is part of why we're indwelt with the Holy Spirit, that it's not just about salvation, it's not just about sin management or being filled to do ministry. That the Holy Spirit is an ever-present present help in our labors, in our work. And this is something we should seek. We should seek that the Holy Spirit would fill us up to do our labor well. And that part of what he wants to do, according to this passage with Bezalel, is to empower us to work well, to do our work well. So the Holy Spirit empowers us as in craftsmanship and understanding and wisdom and, and all these things for our work. He helps us get back to what we were designed to be, which was godly laborers. And this changes our understanding a little bit. I think it changes our value that we put on work. And here's how I like to think about it. Um, we've got a this verse here, God has made the world and everything in it. Since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, God does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needs anything because he gives to all life and breath and all things. Do not be deceived, my uh, beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. It comes down from the Father of lights in whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. One of the kind of standard Christian understandings is that everything comes from God, that he's the giver of all things. I think the Jews do this a little better than us. They, they put it in almost every um, one of their blessings, but that we understand that everything comes from God. Everything comes from God. And when we need things, we pray that God would provide those things, even the practical things. You know, part of the Lord's prayer is give us this day our daily bread. And so we understand that everything comes from God. Okay, is that... We're all pretty level on that understanding, right? If that is true, if everything comes from God, and we're talking about our houses and our cars and our clothing and our food and you know the books we like to read and all these things come from God, 
then it seems that God uses humans to provide those things. Somebody built that house. Somebody put together that car. Somebody shot that movie. Somebody made those clothes. That God does his providing through human work, through human effort. We can't, we kind of can't have it both ways. Unless you've ever prayed for a shirt and it just fell out of the sky in front of you, somebody worked in order for God to provide, if that makes sense. So in a sense, our very effort, our very work, the labor we do, is how God provides for the world. It's one of the ways that he, that God blesses people is through our effort and our work. And, I, and sometimes this is easier to understand if, you, if you're like in the healthcare industry and you're like, I save physical lives. It's pretty easy to see the hand of God at work in that. Like I, you know, and if you're even like farmers, like I feed the world. That's what I do. Like I can see, like some of those things, it's easy to attach. And some people, it's, it's tougher. It's, you know, I'm on an assembly line and I just do this. I don't know what, I don't know how that helps anybody, you know. But it doesn't matter what we have. Somebody made it. And, and as God is providing it, he's cooperating with humans to do it. So our work has this divine edge to it in that it is God's method for caring for his world that our work is how God chooses to do that. He chooses to provide through us and through our work. The next thing we have to recognize um, is that all work is spiritual. And, and that, uh, in a sense, what I love about the, the kind of work that's revealed in God is, is the first way he kind of, shows himself to us is as a gardener. Um, hands in the dirt, planting, you know, dirty knees. Like the imagery is, is a gardener, you know, just a guy covered in dirt planting. When In the New Testament, when he reveals himself as a worker, it says a carpenter, building chairs and tables and covered in sawdust and probably carrying a lunchbox to work, you know, with a sandwich in it. You know, like just a, I love that, that, God's, you know, original kind of revelation to us of himself as a worker wasn't like a philosopher. You know, it wasn't God like standing, declaring, like as much as I would love that. Um, it, it wasn't God just spouting truth, you know, that when he revealed himself as a worker, it's like this blue collar thing. You know, it's he's in it and he's, you know, he's doing physical work. And that is spiritual because that's what our God does. That doesn't mean that praying and studying and doing theology and, and learning and education are, are bad. It's not that those are less spiritual. But there, you can't say that one job is more spiritual than another because our God chose to plant a garden and build a chair. That's what our God de- decided to do when he was on the earth, was to do work, like real work. That makes all work spiritual. No matter what we're doing, no matter what effort you're putting in to providing for the world, providing for your family, providing for ministry, it's spiritual. It's all because our God did it too. And finally, our last one. Our work is... uh, 
one of the ways we reflect our, one of the ways we live as image bearers. One of the ways that we say, uh, because it says that we're made in his image and likeness, that we, we kind of reflect the nature of God. Um, work is one of the ways we do that. When we work well, we show forth our God. God said, let us make him man in our own image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over the cattle, over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So as God gave us dominion, as he set us to tend the garden, he did it so that we would do it in his image, reflecting his likeness. This is where things like integrity come into play. This is where things like um, using our work to, to show forth the nature um, of redemption. Um, all these things can happen in our workplace. You know, we can, we can understand work as a place where um, where we, in essence, do our ministry because that's how God did it. And, and when we do it, we reflect his image. We can understand that when I'm here, I'm being like my God. And this is the best way for me to imitate my God is through work and through being a good worker, through doing good craftsmanship and through doing it with integrity and for doing it in a way that uh, grows the world and makes it better and provides for people, that when we do these things, we're being like God. And that's what we were created for. It says we were created to bear his image and his likeness. And we do that by working the way he would work. Our last thing here, and this is how we would respond to this tonight. And this is the biggest one. This is the, I think this is the single biggest way we redeem our work, that we redeem this relationship with our vocation. And it's here in, uh, in Ephesians. Paul says, Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling and sincerity of heart, as to Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart with good will, doing service as unto the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he's a slave or free. And you masters do the same thing to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. And I always feel obligated to say this whenever we bump into these verses that the kind of socioeconomic understanding of slavery in that day was very different than ours. It wasn't race-based and it wasn't generally lifelong. It was more of an indentured servitude. So we've got to be real careful when we read these passages and it says slavery that we don't take those the wrong direction. The Bible never endorses what we would, um, what a, like America's period of slavery um, where it was a race-based slavery and it was a lifelong thing. Um, so please be careful when you read these passages, you don't fall into that category. But I love how it says here that uh, whatever we do, we do as unto the Lord. And this is the number one way I think we redeem our work is that we work for one boss. And then we understand we work for an audience of one, that, that we have one person we're trying to please, one person we're trying to do things for. And I love that he levels the playing field here. It doesn't matter if you're on the entry level position on bottom. He says, that doesn't matter. You're working for God. It doesn't matter if you are the CEO on top. He said, it doesn't matter with God, there's no partiality. You're still working for the same boss, God. 
And so that whatever we do, whatever work we're doing, whatever effort we're putting forth, we're doing it for God. Whatever we do. And if ever there are a few vocations that I can imagine um, probably don't coincide with the kingdom of God. And if you get into a position where you know I could not do this and feel like I'm doing it for God, um, then maybe it's time to change your vocation. Short of that, your vocation is spiritual. Your vocation is divine work. It's God's work. It's how God is choosing to provide and advance uh, what we call the cultural mandate from, uh, from Genesis, where God said, go be fruitful and multiply and, and go forward in the earth. We call that the cultural mandate that we were supposed to expand and grow. I mean, I, what's funny is we tend to think that if Adam and Eve hadn't sinned, we'd all still be walking around in a garden, you know, naked. Chances are things, you know, would have advanced. I mean, obviously we wouldn't have had the wars and the division, but we would, I think we'd still have cities. I think we still, that, that culture still would have grown and expanded and we would have continued to uh, learn and develop and, and all these things would have happened. We work for one boss, for God. If we could grasp that alone, I think we'd go a long way toward redeeming our work. If we would realize that these things that we do matter to God. I pray all the time in here that I don't see this, I don't see our gathering as like the primary place of ministry. I feel like this is where we come and I, I feel this in my soul because I, I, I joke about it. I know it sounds funny when I say it, but half the time I do feel like I crawl in here on Sunday and just like, I'm so glad to be back. Like, because I feel like the work we do, the real ministry we do, the real calling we have is when we leave here. We come here to get strengthened and built up and encouraged and loved on so that God can send us out like missionaries, all of us. Every single one of us is just as spiritual of a worker as somebody in the church. Probably more, probably more. Because you guys are out in the trenches, like you're out in the, the thick of it. And so you drag yourself back in. God kind of inhales us into his sacred presence and then exhales us back out into the world to do work and to do the ministry and to really be on the ground serving the world and then we come back together and get built up again and get healed and patched up and so we can go out and do it all over again the real ministry never happens in here the real ministry happens out there and we come in here to get ready for it so as we go to the table tonight uh, I'm, I'm drawn to the realization that God just uses ordinary things. That God just loves to use ordinary things. Bread and wine and, and uh, a garden and carpentry. That these images that kind of shape who we are, fishes and loaves. And he didn't call the elite, he called fishermen, you know, to serve him. And, and that so much of the way our God works is ordinary. It's just ordinary things. And the most spiritual thing we can do is do our ordinary life well. 
do our ordinary life with integrity, with justice, um, with the spirit of God going with us, with love and compassion and mercy and, and quality, that doing all these ordinary things well is the most spiritual thing we can do because that's, what our, that's who our God is. He, he's the God of the extraordinary ordinary.